but the way people change how they show up in their lives and, and, and transfer things they learn from fitness and nutrition into their personal and professional life, to me, is the rawest form of magic I've had the privilege to experience. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? Big news this week as TFC officially made the MLS Cup, which is happening next Sunday. So this is the third time in four years that the team has made it to the championship game. The game is going to be in Seattle against Seattle, which is a notoriously hard place to play because they have absolutely amazing fans. So I'm going to be going next weekend to Seattle to see that game. And I'm so stoked for it. The atmosphere is going to be unbelievable. Apparently the tickets for this game sold out in 20 minutes and that was like 70,000 tickets. So it's definitely gonna be one of those sporting events for the books. And hopefully the team brings home another cup for the city. That would be so exciting. Sports are so crazy. They're so full of nuance and emotion and yet the world tries so hard to boil them down into really simple storylines. In many ways, I love sports because they fully exist in the present moment. The speed with which an entire scenario can change is really hard to grasp unless you've actually been in it and felt it. In sports, you are truly defined by the current moment, nothing more and nothing less, which is what makes them so exciting, but also what makes them so nerve-wracking and unpredictable. There's nothing simple about the ups and downs, conflicting emotions, shifting momentum, and unexpected outcomes that make up an entire season. Looking back on this season, it's truly been one of ups and downs, but it's really exciting that it's culminating with this final championship game. I only get glimpses of the inside, but I see enough to know that no one truly understands what it's like to be a professional athlete. It's the most challenging thing to try and explain, which is why I have such trouble when someone asks, so how's the season going? There is no simple answer. There never is. There's no way that I can help someone understand the story in five minutes. And I don't know, maybe that's at the root of why we are so captivated by sports. Because we sense that there's something greater to them. There's something more beneath the surface of what we see. One thing that I do know is that it takes grit to ride the waves of ups and downs that this career brings. It takes an immense amount of strength to embrace it all and still hold on to who you are through it. That is why I am so proud of Eric. He does it better than anyone I've ever seen, which I think is so commendable. So whether we win this cup next week or not, I am very proud. But still, I hope we get to bring home another cup. Anyways, enough about that. This week on the podcast, I have a very special guest. I spoke with Mark Fisher this week. Mark was a former actor turned international speaker, consultant, and entrepreneur. He co-founded Mark Fisher Fitness, one of the most successful gyms in the history of the fitness industry. MFF has two physical locations in Manhattan and was recognized on the 2015 500 fastest growing companies in America and was named one of the men's health top 20 gyms in America. He also created Business for Unicorns in 2016 with his partner Michael and helps business owners achieve financial success and personal freedom through community building, leadership development, and creating healthy organizational cultures. Mark Fisher and therefore his companies are very unique places. He really is someone that is so unapologetically themselves and that translates into both of his companies. I had a blast talking to Mark. It is obvious that he is one of those people that is just a lifelong student, fascinated by so many different things and therefore can speak on such a wide variety of topics. I think Mark would be proud that this episode is the perfect combination of ridiculousness and seriousness. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Mark Fisher. Welcome to the How Do You Feel podcast. It's so lovely to have you. It's great to be here. 
I can't help but noticing before we start, you have two massive stacks of books behind you and they're all perfectly color coded. Yeah. What is that about? Uh, it looks pretty cool, but it's not very practical. Actually, there's another one. There's a couple more stacks over oh there. My, gosh. <laughs> uh, my wife and I did that when we got in here and you can't see on this wall, there's like a ton more books. It looks so cool and it's so not practical. So I'm like, <laughs> you can't even get a book out without them all totally. toppling over. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that you can't see is those bookshelves. They're actually cool and you can find them online pretty cheap. They, they're actually, it's like a secret. There's like little shelves all the way up. Got but it. It's still annoying because it, it's not easy to pull out one book at a time. And then when you do, they all like get like tilted. It also gets kind of dusty. The ones on the other side were orange, but they're directly in the sun. And we're like on the 30th floor. So it's just like a magnifying glass. So the orange ones are now like a pale, pale hint of yellow white books. Oh, so, no. <laughs> totally all good. Uh, I'm a big lover of books, so I'm currently exploring how I might organize this better. It will probably mean moving. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fair. Running out of space. So I'm going to literally move to have more room for my books. Uh, I know that you have a background in theater, so yes. you were an actor on Broadway, but then you made a well, transition. I was, <laughs> I was in the vicinity of Broadway, but I, <laughs> I did do musical theater. That is true. Okay, okay, cool. Aspiring to be on Broadway. Yes, we'll go yeah. with that. Um, but then you made the transition into fitness somehow. So can you tell me how that happened? Yeah. Well, I like many actors and you do some things from time to time to supplement my middling income as a performer. Theater is an amazing way to make life is not the best way to make a living. So for me, I fell in love with fitness because it became a real interest of mine at the very end of high school on and off throughout college and then very serious in my early twenties. I found it was virtually the only thing in my life I could control as an actor where everything was out of my control and out of my hands. And I really liked it. I really liked it a lot. And because I'm an enthusiastic person, oftentimes what happened was very organically, anytime I was doing a show, people would ask me about working out or I would, a dear friend of mine reminded me I had forgotten about this, that as early as like 2004, I was like writing people workout plans when I was doing shows. Um, now to my credit, I knew that I didn't know what I was talking about. So I never charged anybody any money for it. <laughs> And when I look back on those programs, they were rather foolish, but they were something and they were given with a lot of love and a lot of heart. And as my 20s progressed, I decided to take the training thing a little bit more seriously. And I found myself in a situation where I had to stay in town for an extended period, which means I couldn't really do regional work because I had some family weddings coming up that I didn't want to miss. So I took the opportunity to get a certification in the National Academy of Sports Medicine got a job in your sports club. And then I really, really, really got into fitness. And then for several years, I always describe it as my mistress that I left my wife for. And then I just fell in love with training so much. And I still liked theater, but it became more and more clear to me that the theater, as much as I loved it, wasn't going to provide me, at least not in my career, some of the things that I wanted for my life. And beyond that, the level of gratification I, I felt when I was able to directly impact somebody's life through fitness was really powerful and something I really, really loved and cherished. The end of the story to make it quick is basically I developed a niche of a bunch of performers and Mark Fisher Fitness was my attempt to make really good training and fitness and nutrition information accessible to people that I didn't feel the industry were necessarily speaking to. So mm -hmm. that's why we call our members ninjas and it's not a gym. It's the Enchanted Ninja Clubhouse of Glory and Dreams and our mascot is the unicorn. And I just really want to make a place that was safe and inclusive and kind and nurturing, but that also the people really, really knew what they were doing. So our tagline is ridiculous humans, serious fitness. So it's a very colorful space, colorful people, colorful language and vulgarity, but all done in a motherly, <laughs> wholesome, nurturing way that's very confusing to most people, but hopefully delightful. I love it. I've never had the, the pleasure of coming and seeing uh, your space, but it does seem like Mark Fisher Fitness is a place that is very uniquely its own. And from an outsider's perspective, yeah. it seems like it comes from you just being so unapologetically yourself and then translating that into your business and just going with it. Yes. So yeah, I would love for you to tell me about that and how you, and I don't know where your decision came from to just, that where you just decided, you know what, my brand is just going to be all me. Yeah, it's really weird. I feel lucky to be talking about this now because I'm doing a lot of work trying to explore how that happened because I don't know yet. I have my like, oh, I'll do this and then this will happen. I don't have an algorithm for it yet, but I'm in fact giving 
a keynote in several months called being unapologetically you, how to grow your business as a trainer. So I'm in the process right now of unpacking how that all happened. One thing I will share that was part of it for me, I think was just frankly, I don't know. I was already like in my early thirties. I had just kind of gotten my butt kicked by life a lot. And I was just like, F it. I don't care. This is who I am. I'm just going to do this. But there was real anxiety is maybe not the word, but I had some reservations about coming as full out as MFF did, particularly because it went from me not having much of a personal brand at all to suddenly like, let's do a photo shoot with me in like short shorts, doing like jump kits or like fighting a Twinkie and then cuddling with a Twinkie afterwards or where did these uh, it, ideas come from? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I wish I knew. So that's the thing too, that is an unfair advantage I think I have off in the space because I had a background as an artist. I think my brain was trained to think laterally and think creatively and just associate like, weird things. And one thing that has also served me, my discipline to actually take action and execute on that is a little bit unusual. Hmm. So I don't know exactly where the ideas came from other than, I remember with that particular suit, I just wanted things that were like funny and interesting and I want to riff on conventions of the fitness industry. Everything from like old timey strongman, like I was like, he's like a carnival barker to like the Twinkie. There was something about like Brad Pitt and Fight Club, particularly that sort of like jacked, oiled up cigarette smoking bro that I want to turn on its head. Even the like, uh, you know, romance novel, serial superhero but done as like a richard simmons like short short 70s like jazzercise guy i'm just interested in juxtaposition so i'm i can't help it and it's sort of like a impish provocative playful part of me always wants to zag when everyone else is zigging even in the fitness industry i was very intentional about okay this one thing that i'm very serious about serious training and iron and strength and science and math and grit and steel I wanted to make sure it had like, in addition to all the muscles, like drag queens and unicorns and rainbow and glitter and silliness and Twinkies and all these things that didn't go together. And it has been confusing to me as much as anyone why it has worked. <laughs> but I think it's because the other piece of this, which again, I'm not sure yet how to reverse engineer is because it was authentic. And I, frankly, I've seen people attempt to do their version of it and it, I think it can come across as a little self-conscious and a little self-aware, whereas this is just genuinely who I am, for better or for worse. So many of the things that caused me great sadness as like a child in middle school ultimately turned out to be helpful to other people and monetizable. Um, but I do think it starts probably with being very clear on who you are, being very clear on what matters to you, being very clear on what your values are, being very clear on who you're looking to help, being very clear on why it is you feel called to help that community then I think it requires being cognizant of the fact that you are designed by evolution to be very hyper where everyone around you is thinking. And it will, you will feel a lot of dissonance if you're going to do something that's going to have you stick out because you will have people judge you for it. You will have people say that you have an ego. You will have people doubt perhaps your intentions, doubt perhaps your authenticity. And that is a fire walk for many people walking across those fire coals. A challenge for me in particular, because I still struggle a lot with being a people pleaser, like, mm. it, like if I feel not seen or misunderstood. And I think I've made more peace with that, just in part because I've gotten older. And I think the last piece, and this is like very heavy, that I think is like a good relationship with mortality. I think if you're able to look at your life through the lens of how brief you are on this planet, it can be an amazing salve for those concerns about what other people might think, particularly when you're dealing with something with social convention. Certainly if you've done something immoral, right? Or you've done something that you've really like hurt somebody or somebody's very angry with you because you've done something wrong. I think it's actually appropriate to feel remorseful. It's appropriate to make amends. It's appropriate to grow from that discomfort. But when it's purely people think you're saying a weird thing or wearing that you shouldn't wear like cat meggings, I don't understand that. Again, there's a part of me that can't help not push the little button because it just doesn't make any sense to me. I feel like it's weird. It's a weird way of giving your power away. Of like, I can't even be comfortable. There's a man there wearing cat pants. And for me, I'm like, well, who, who cares? I'm just wearing cat pants. I'm not doing anything to you. I'm curious about what some of the, more about the experience of being at Mark Fisher Fitness. Yeah. So what are some of the other things that people could expect when they walk in your doors? Oh, you know, it's so interesting, Casey, because it's actually a surprisingly normal place in many ways. To be clear, the colors are very unusual. It is more likely than not your instructor will be wearing something very unusual. 
you will hear a lot more profanity than you will in a lot of places. It's a very high ratio of swear words to words spoken. <laughs> but you will also hear a lot of good information about fitness, a lot of really thoughtfully crafted programs, thoughtfully approached technical coaching. Most of all, what I hope you hear is an exploration of a certain philosophy of life, a certain approach of life that is in keeping in with what we've seen to be the best practices for how one lives a good life, which I think one must look at everything from philosophy to cognitive psychology to the arts. There's so many ways I think that people can answer that. But at the end of the day, for me, that is the thing that is most interesting about it is it's a little bit of a ruse that will get you to come there. I always say people come for the six packs, but they stay to cope with the anxieties of modernity. So I'm happy to get you there because I realize I have to sell I understand from a marketing perspective, the product, the service you're buying is often for our community. I don't like fitness studios. I don't like gyms. They make me sometimes feel bad about myself. I'm nervous about what's going to happen with my long-term health. I can't find a solution. I just hate this stuff so much. I just want to find something where I don't feel crappy about myself and I like it enough to do it. And ideally with people that are nice. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the brand promise of MFF, right? So, you know, we're not going to be, you know, dropping Nietzsche quotes outside the gate, but ultimately at its best, it functions like a secular church. At its best, don't get me wrong, I never lose sight of the fact we are being paid by clients in a free market society to give them workouts and have mm-hmm. fitness outcomes. So that has to always be first and foremost. But I think, frankly, you get the best results when it's delivered in a context that understands that being human is challenging at times, that fitness and nutrition are most, I think, helpful and impactful when you look at it really as a dojo for how do I want to show up in my life under adversity? How do I want to show up consistently? How do I want to do the thing that's in my long-term best interest even when it's the hard thing? How do I choose to find my center and keep good joint positioning while I'm actually experiencing deep physical discomfort at the end of a workout? I think the things you learn in fitness are all metaphors. I think it's a dojo to help you become the best whatever you are. And yes, it's cool because you'll live longer and that is awesome. And that is a very real thing that reduces human suffering, certainly for all the people who love you. But then that becomes a doorway for you to understand that you have volition in all the things you do in your life. You have agency. And I think that proof for people when they see that if I can change this about my fitness, if I can change this about my nutrition, then maybe I can do that in other realms of my life. And to me, Like that's where you start seeing real leverage, you know, and it's a bold and grand, but you know, ideally we want to create social change, right? Like honestly, like that's why like I'm in fitness. Like, yes, I want people to get six packs. That's cool. But you know, like, I don't know. I've been in the game a long time. It's not as interesting to me anymore, but the way people change how they show up in their lives and, and, and transfer things they learn for fitness and nutrition into their personal and professional life to me is the rawest form of magic I've had the privilege to experience. 100%. Yeah. yeah. That's like why you stay in this business. Totally. I think. Because if you don't, you, you see... get bored, right? Yeah. Like if it's just about six packs, you get bored, you start being like, my dumb clients keep doing dumb things. I think there might be other lessons you can learn there, but you know, go with God. God bless. Right. <laughs> I feel like the way that you're talking, like this must be why your brand and your business have come across so authentically and why this concept has worked is because it's so rooted in the bigger picture and thinking about people as a whole it's not just about the show and it's not just about the fitness therefore that's probably why it works i think so and it's i'm the first to admit it's also very imperfect place because it's it's hard to do it and we're not perfect we're a bunch of humans so we all do dumb stuff every day and you know the reality is there is this challenge when first of all you're running a business you have to do like the business things right you're trying to get good fitness nutrition outcomes you want to be good at the fitness stuff and there's not even always agreement even among the team how we do that so one thing that i do think is hard that i think is maybe the most important job i have which i don't think i'm perfectly at but i think i'm like pretty good at is just constantly reminding everyone of like well why are we even here Yes, let's get this system better. Yes, this system is a little like not perfect. And yes, we could probably, you know, up level and 1% better improve this particular nutrition system. And yes, we've got to get better and hit like our, you know, financial growth numbers because that's going to be a proxy for us impacting more people and allow the team to have certain benefits in their life that otherwise we can't have. But the end game is helping people like change their lives. And it can be very easy to forget that day to day, right? And I've been guilty of that as anybody, right? Where you have like a month, you're like, oh, you know, our numbers aren't where we want them to be. They're down. 
you know, it's like, well, you know, we only changed like, you know, 80 new people's life this month, not 90. Oh, why are we even doing this? We suck. And I don't think that's actually helpful or true. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely possible, especially I feel in new businesses to get so caught up in the systems that all of a sudden you're only focusing on the systems themselves and like, are the systems working and, you know, are they bettering themselves and you lose sight of the why of the purpose, like the reason that you put the systems in place at all. So I think it's a great point that you have to keep coming back to that. Yeah, it's tough because you got to toggle, right? If it's just about the why and it's just about the mission, but there's no head down day to day. A friend of mine gave me a great comment the other day, which is really like sitting with me. I was like so touched. And I don't know if this is true, but I hope it is because it makes me very happy. He's like, he says, I think like an artist and I act like a scientist. Right. And I think that's the thing is that you've constantly toggling back and forth between the big picture and between, okay, what do I do right now in this moment? How do I improve the system? But also what is the impact I'm trying to have on this person? So I always like to say, I'm like highbrow and I'm lowbrow. I like Nietzsche quotes and fart jokes. I don't have a lot of like in between. Yeah, that makes total sense. Nowadays, your ventures are not limited to Mark Fisher Fitness anymore. I know it's kind of like where yes. you started and where you entered the fitness and business scene, but Now you're doing a bunch of other stuff too. So I'm curious what those other things are. Yeah, well, the main thing, uh, MFF's Spunky Kid Sister is a company called Business for Unicorns. And I run that also with my MFF business partner and my non-sexual life partner, Michael Keeler. And that essentially is the business under which we run all of our speaking, the courses we offer, a coaching group for fitness business owners called the Unicorn Society, That is, yeah, basically another business that has allowed us to, I think, take a lot of what we have learned and continue to learn in real time with MFF and try to share those frameworks for other people so that they can get better results, whatever is they're looking to do. What need did you see, whether it was in the fitness industry or not, but what need did you see that the business for Unicorn side of things would fulfill? I think Michael and I are pretty good at some of this stuff. And I think that one benefit that Business for Unicorns has is probably the same that MFF does, that Michael and I tend to see most issues very, very differently. So it's like we're constantly sort of flossing ideals together. Just between the two of us, we kind of make like a whole brain, right? Because we're going to look at these things very, very differently. How do you tend to see things versus how he tends to see things? I mean, I give you specific examples. We just tend to always like come down the other side of a lot of stuff. Also, our skill sets are different. The things that I'm most interested in, he's less so. And the things that he's most interested in, I tend to be less so. I think in general, like the, the probably the highest level thing is, I wouldn't say like I'm a fraidy cat, but I tend to be more of like an oocher. I tend to be a little bit more uh, measured as far as like the bets I want to take. I tend to be uh, a little bit more pessimistic as far as like what outcomes will happen with things, which is interesting. I don't know that that's the way that Michael and I would read. Michael appropriately has a lot of self-confidence and a lot of belief in us. And he's generally looking for more evolu- uh, revolutions as opposed to evolutions. And he's looking for more like moonshots and perpetually feeling like we can play bigger and solve bigger issues and has a useful level of dissatisfaction that's a constant undertone for that reason. Mm-hmm. Whereas for me, I have a pathological constant like level of like, oh, I can't believe this. I can't believe life is happening. I have very low expectations. I can't believe I can turn a faucet and hot water comes out. I can't believe that society's not broken down into a bunch of raping, pillaging Vikings everywhere. Like I just can't believe we have society, we have laws. I just find all of this such an unexpected, wonderful thing. Um, and that's because on some level it portrays like a very dark, dark uh, actually expectations about humanity. So I find everything just like kind of a miracle all the time. You know, but there's downsides to being a happy idiot, right? The downsides are like, I wouldn't say that I settle easily because I think I come around to it. But I think a lot of my relationship with Michael, frankly, has been me in classic Joseph Campbell in denial of call where I'm like, no, no, let's not do that. No, it's hard. No, I don't know how to, I don't even know how to do that. I'm not, I'm not going to be good at that. And him being like, no, no. Even down to when MFF started, he approached me. It took him several months to uh, manipulate me into starting MFF. When we first started having our conversations, I didn't want to have the business because I knew correctly there were some real painful things I'd have to like, learn. I was like, don't want to deal with real estate taxes. Don't want to deal with like management. I don't want to deal with like all these things. And he, in his way, just kept pushing, I think, for a bigger vision of what MFF could be, which is good because the bigger vision was the one that had a seat for him and the original one didn't, (laughs) frankly, because it was a much smaller business. Um, So I think that's part of how we look differently. To get back to the original question, I think what makes Business for Unicorns different? 
I mean, certainly it's different because it's our particular approach of things. And I don't even know this, so it's like better than other things, but I think it's different. I think the way we look at it is different. I think Michael and I are different. I think at our best, there is a thoughtfulness, uh, a humility, a client-centered approach, which is similar to Mark Fisher Fitness that is a little bit unusual. And a lot of the other options, again, I can't say that I don't think they're worse than ours. They're just different. A lot of them are friends of mine, but Michael and I are like very different than a lot of people in the fitness industry. And we just kind of felt like there's probably a lot of other different people that are like us that maybe would be fun for them to have somebody like us to work with because we'd have similar values. We'd look at things a little bit differently because there is a, a stereotype, which I don't think is entirely fair, but there's a stereotype certainly in the fitness industry. You know, it's like a, a lot of like former athlete, you know, ball white straight men with tattoos in their thirties and forties with a lot of muscle. And that is totally cool. And those guys are some of them, my best, best friends in the world. And, you know, for obvious reasons, different life experience, you have different ways of looking at things. And I think Michael and I have a background that is very unlikely. We both laugh a great deal. We found ourselves in the fitness industry. Can't believe how this happened. You know, and our hope is particularly in fitness, we are able to offer help for the people that believe in what we believe. For the future biz for unicorns, what I'd like to see us do is I think probably push it even further with the irreverence because I personally find a lot of business stuff. And I was watching a webinar this morning by very wonderful, very intelligent people. And it's, I think they're, they're great and they're doing really great work. And I just found it so unnecessarily boring and slow and corporate and beige and vanilla. And I just want to like throw a glitter bomb into that, you know. I think already probably unusually irreverent, and I think I could see us probably taking that even a little bit further, particularly in the, the more business space at large. But it's because it's, it, people learn differently. People want color in their life. People, the brain learns better with humor. We learn better with metaphor. Those things that surprise us, delight us, confuse us, make us laugh, they allow memories to become more tactile. You actually learn better and more effectively, right? And I think that adopting the best practices of behavior change we know from fitness but applying them in business coaching where we all know it would be ridiculous to go to like a one day seminar for fat loss and do like an eight hour day and take a bunch of notes and be like, never see you again. Best of luck, Mrs. Rossini. Best of luck. You know, like you need ongoing contact. It's often that can be too much information all at once. So we've been playing with how do we meet people where they're at with their current expectations, knowing that that is the current model, right? Is this one day information thing, but begin to play with different structures. Well, how do we help people actually apply things on an ongoing basis? Because we know the issue is going to be, they're going to go and apply it and they're like, oh wait, it didn't work. I just feel like we can do better. <laughs> I feel like we can do better. Yeah, but I'm trying to figure out what it is in real time. So yeah, it's a different kind of learning that happens with that seminar kind of versus the ongoing yeah. like, bit by bit trial and error things. I think one thing I'm pretty good at is using words to educate and entertain. And what I'm most interested in is how can I be most impactful of service to the people that have entrusted me with their time and their energy? And that is why I've spent so much of the past year studying adult learning or like educational pedagogy is the pretentious term for it. Because humans don't really learn by somebody talking at them usually. Now they can. So, so for instance, somebody listening to this right now, hopefully they are getting some things they're going to follow up with, right? Hopefully this is planting some seeds, but at best it's probably going to plant seeds. If you're actually looking for transformation, people need to go through the stages of competence. They need to burst past their illusion of competence because they understand the words and they've got a general idea of the outline. They have to experience the discomfort required for growth where they try to do the thing and they discover that even though they thought they understood it, that they're a baby lamb, that when they go to apply, they're not actually able to apply it. And that's where having a community and support and a coach and somebody to guide you through that can be so helpful to fast track that process. Definitely. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about vulnerability, which has become such a buzzword. It <laughs> frustrates me so much because at its core, it's such a beautiful concept, of right? Course, of course. It's so important. So I'm curious if you could just tell us about why vulnerability is so important on a well-functioning team and how it contributes yeah. to a culture of success. Oh gosh. I feel it's the most important thing because I think what makes it so important is because you're not being a full human unless you're vulnerable, right? Like, it, because virtually all of us have things we're like not certain about and virtually all of us are dealing with like unprocessed traumas and like, you know, we're, we are none of us perfect, right? 
vulnerability is really opening up yourself to something, opening up the soft side of yourself and admitting I need help or admitting like I don't know how to do this or I am afraid about this thing. We are often socialized, and certainly particularly for men, that that's not a good thing to do, right? You want to, we want to be safe first, right? So it's better to keep our cards close to our chest. Mm-hmm. But like it shows weakness, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, it has the opposite effect. It keeps space between you and other people, right? And I think that you begin to collapse the distance between you and a coworker or a client or an audience member if they know that you're real. Now, there are some things to consider there, right? I think like you, it's, I feel like, oh gosh, it's come from a really great place. But one of the things that become a challenge is when it becomes like commodified. When vulnerability is commodified and it's the things we do as a sales tactic for this very transactional relationship. And if anybody's listening and they've done this, I hope you don't think I'm calling you out and just picture me giving you a big hug while I say this, just gently mutilating and poke a little fun at you. Like the Facebook post begins with, well, I'm, I'm so scared to admit this. I'm so scared to admit I've had these issues. I don't know. And again, I'm not here to judge. Like, I don't know. It probably could be coming from a very authentic place. I think it's probably better we're getting here now than a few years ago where everybody was afraid to share that they had issues. And to this day, I know a lot of fitness professionals feel like they need to keep part of themselves hidden away because they are either ashamed of or guilty about that they're not perfect. When in fact, to me, I felt very lucky to me. It's always been so obvious that, well, yeah, you're obviously not perfect. No one's perfect. I'm not perfect. Uh, I trust people more that lead with like, (laughs) you know, their imperfections. And I think this is distinction between when it's done well and when it's done like not as well is when it's transactional and it's about, I'm going to do this so I can get this outcome from this other person. It's a form of trying to control somebody else. I think almost we're in the definition of manipulation, right? Whereas when it's done authentically, which is another word that maybe is a buzzword. I'm not even really sure what it means necessarily, but when it's done generously, I'm sharing this with you because I'm using my social intuition to understand in the context of our relationship this disclosure is going to make us closer and we're going to be more human together, then I think that's beautiful. And I think like that's what we're looking for with our clients. I think that's what we're looking for in our work relationships. It's what we're looking for in our personal relationships. And again, it requires social intuition because the other thing too is all disclosure is a bid for intimacy. It's something they taught us in acting class, right? And I believe that when you disclose something meaningful, disclose a vulnerability to somebody, you have an opportunity to get closer. You're being more human together. You're, you're getting emotionally naked together. However, there's the transactional version of it. And then there's the individual that's not reading the room, you know, like drops the bomb that the room is not ready for and inadvertently triggered all sorts of other unprocessed like traumas, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm negotiating. There's some challenging things that have happened in my life. I think are going to be part of this being unapologetically used speech. And I really want to do it in a way that's responsible and like thoughtful about the fact that like other people will probably have a hard time hearing some of this stuff because it will, it'll ring close to home. But I do believe that, I can do that, I think. And I think the key will be probably the things that I said is like, I'm certainly not doing it to like get like a transactional outcome and I want to be respectful and responsible about like, it's okay for us to feel this and also acknowledge like, these are some things I've gone through and I've come to process them and made them mean good things. So I want to start by sharing this has a happy ending relatively. All such good points. You hit the nuances of that really well. So vulnerability and openness are very important uh, on successful teams. I'm curious what, in your opinion, are some of the most prominent other traits of successful teams? So I have to give credit to Patrick Mancioni, who is a writer on organizational culture that I think has a lot of thoughtful stuff. And he has this really interesting book called Five Dysfunctions of a Team. If somebody wants a good overview, there's a 30-minute video they can find, which is actually funny. You'll actually laugh out loud because he's wonderful, uh, deliver this information. He's a great speaker. Yeah, that was and it's, really good. It's so universal. The thing why I love talking about teams is it's universal because it's about communities, right? It's a work community. And whether you work in a big corporation or a small business, the same thing happened on every team. On every team, there's the person that's like super dialed in and super methodical and precise. And like, oh, why does this other person, they never answer their emails on time. They don't respect me. They don't have a passion for excellence. And then the other person's like, oh, that person's always tightly wound all the time. I wish they could just relax and connect with people because nobody likes that person. If we had that person, we'd go broke, right? So you see like versions of those dynamics happening in a lot of organizations. This book, Five Dysfunctions of the Team, calls out some of these dysfunctions. And the, the biggest one, the most common one, is a lack of trust. And how you get trust is vulnerability, right? You get trust is being willing 
to be honest with other people, which is scary for many people, but that's like the, the key thing. One of those dysfunctions are lack of accountability, right? Mm -hmm. Lack of accountability of results. So the inverse of that is like, what is a high functioning team has? It has like clear accountability. And this is where the proof gets in the pudding. This is the hardest thing I think to do in businesses because you always have to look at the context of the individual and what's going on. And this is very, very hard for me because I, I think I'm a pretty empathetic person and I, to a fault at times, always understand where everyone is coming from. I feel like I could always get like, oh, well, that makes sense. They did that thing. But ultimately, one of the things that high-functioning teams need is, and this is, this is bold. This might shock people that I say this. I don't like using the word family for my team because we're not a family. We're a team. And the rules are different. I am not going to not be related to my family no matter what happens. <laughs> However, in teams, there has to be consequences for things. So if people aren't able to perform a job responsibility, if they're not able to get certain outcomes that are agreed upon, it is in everyone's best interest, including that individual, for them to no longer be on that team. Now, this is also the hardest thing. I've never seen an organization where people are satisfied with accountability, ever. I've never seen a place where everyone's like, yep, we're very happy. We feel like this is a place where everyone is very accountable. So in every never. World, wow. at the very least, there's always room for improvement, right? Mm -hmm. Is challenging because oftentimes you have the people on the team, they're looking up at management. And the other thing that's challenging for management is sometimes you are addressing things and somebody on the team is upset because they're like, why does this person keep getting away from things? And you can't tell them, well, like, actually, I just got out of a meeting where I made this person cry because they know that if they mess up again, they're being fired. But it's not appropriate for me to tell that to the, someone's colleague and their peer because that's, that's not appropriate for public consumption. That'd be a violation of the trust and the vulnerability of that other encounter, right? So I think some of it is because of that information disparity that just has to happen in hierarchical organizations, which are, I think, an imperfect type of organization. But right now, so far as I can see, seem to be better than other flatter organizations. And I know because I've studied them very intensively because I'm very egalitarian. I don't like the fact that like I'm a boss even. Like I'd rather, can we all just be partners? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe in some businesses, I think not bigger ones, usually that doesn't work so good. If it's an organization where the managers have less than a few years of experience and don't have a lot of gifts as a human, it's very rare for them to be good at accountability because when somebody becomes a manager for the first time, they're never good at it. There's a, a venture capitalist, Ben Horowitz, who talks about how just ridiculous it is. Just never in life would I be like, oh, you know, that is a funny joke you just shared, but um, can I share some feedback about it? Because like there's some things about it that like, there were some things were good, but like I think there's other things that would be better. Is it okay if I give you a little feedback on that? Maybe a certain type of friend would do that, but usually it's somebody that's like often correlated, probably like not good like people skills, like a weird thing. Right. <laughs> the manager, suddenly you're responsible for other people, you know, and God forbid you get promoted in the organization and now you're managing somebody else that used to be your peer. It's just a recipe for very challenging things. So one of my favorite books is called Crucial Conversations and they talk about this paradox. People want to go into kindness where like they just want to be nice and they don't want to ruffle any feathers. They go to silence where I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, or they go into violence. And they're like, well, I had to tell you like it is. It's not my fault. It's okay for me to be mad at you. You suck. Get together. In my experience, most managers tend to toggle back and forth. Most humans tend to do a lot more time of silence with occasional moments where the third time the person does the thing, they can blow up at them. Uh, and that doesn't lead to a healthy culture. That doesn't lead to safety. It doesn't lead to any of those things. And the thing that you learn took me a long time to finally get good at this. You have to actually be very meticulous to be a good manager and you have to be good with people. And that again, those don't always go together because you have to be able to read the person, read the contacts, read their facial expression, but you've got to be meticulous enough to track anytime standards are being violated because if you're not constantly having the turbulent conversation in the moment, things will blow up, right? It's like in a plane, you need that low level, constant tension, constant conflict, and I'm making it sound bigger than it is because if you do it well, you get good at it. It's not that big a deal. Like, you know, at the end of the meeting the other day, I was frustrated with somebody on the team. And we had like, we went around, we ranked the score. The person gave like a relatively lower score than I thought we should have had. I was frustrated with some of the things that happened. And I was like, I feel very frustrated right now. I feel very frustrated by that score in that comment, right? And we just like had a chat about it right there in the moment, right? I also didn't say, you made me feel frustrated. Mm -hmm my responsibility. I'm responsible for my feelings. And I don't know it's intuitive for most people to get used to just dealing with it in the moment right away. But also, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just, we're just, again, we're not socialized that way. And probably, probably for good reason. You know, if, we, if everyone was going around telling everybody what they thought all the time without learning how to do it in a way that balanced candor with kindness, that would become problematic. 
But I think if there's one super skill for success in life, it is learning how to have the conversation you need to have when you have a beef with somebody and to be able to be both direct, but be at peace with your heart with that individual, to be totally candid about how you see the situation, but to also have humility for the fact that you don't know where they're coming from and go into it not with that person as an obstacle and an object that's in the way of your preferred reality, but go into that with the intention of understanding that person better and being more human together and, under, and, and trying to connect with that person so that after that conversation, your relationship is strengthened because you've, you've gone, become closer. It sounds so great. It's so hard to do. And I'm probably like mess this up tomorrow, right? <laughs> like, like, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to be perfect at riding the surfboard. I think it's very hard to do. But it occurs to me that it is one of the most universally applicable skills humans should learn if they want to live a wise, impactful, and elegant life. It takes a certain level of mutual respect to have that sort of ability to have a conflict with someone and have that conversation in the moment and then move on and continue to have this like good working relationship. So yeah. I feel like that baseline of respect between all members of the team is a huge component of that. It's so true. And the other thing that I will acknowledge that another core element of a good team is good leadership because the challenge is the leader through no fault of their own has all the bananas and all the monkeys know the leader has the bananas and we are designed by natural selection to constantly be looking at the monkey with the bananas we're constantly asking ourselves two things we're asking am i okay with you are we me leader and me person okay and number two leader are we all all okay are we safe is the organization is the ship okay so as a leader your behavior is very loud People are looking at what you're doing physically. They're looking at the way you're talking. They're just zeroed in on every like minute facial expression, every registering of discomfort, of disagreement, of frustration. To have a successful team, you need a leader that I think is really willing to do some very difficult work on themselves and realize that every challenge they have is going to be magnified by their team. And they need to not only be humble enough to understand that and do that work, but they've also got to be willing to move past their own perfectionism that says, I can finally relax and have fun when I'm a perfect leader because that's also not going to be realistic. It's not going to happen. Being a leader means, unfortunately, for better or for worse, at any given moment, it's likely somebody's a little bit mad at you, or at the very least, they could be mad at you, but they disagree with what you're doing because if you've got a lot of people, you've got a lot of diversity of opinions on your team, there's going to be difference of opinion about how things should happen, Right. There are going to be moments where even if you're doing everything right, some people, some of the time are frustrated with you and it's going to feel personal. And that is tough. There's a price to be paid <laughs> to be a leader. I just think that becomes so broadly applicable for the other personal relationships of your life too, where uh, because there's never time with your family, with your marriage relationships, with your friends, that you don't benefit from being able to notice how you're feeling about a situation and process in a way that's respectful for the other person and with the intent to understand them better and get closer. Yeah, for sure. I wanna shift and talk a little bit more about you. I'm curious uh, what your day-to-day -day looks like right now. What is it that takes up your time mostly? Yeah, gosh, well, right now, for me, it feels like a fair amount of free time because MFAP has a leadership team that's running it and Biz Unicorns, I don't have a ton of day-to-day -day stuff. So I've been spending a lot of my time with education. So my general day is always when I'm at home, which is not a lot of time on the road, but when I'm at home, there is like my first tier time, which is like before noon. There's like second tier time, which is like noon to like six. And there is tier three time, which is after six. Tier one time is where all my best work gets done. Generally speaking, so right now I'm waking up very consistently at like 7.15. I meditate for 20 minutes. Then while I drink my greens for my coffee, I do 30 to 60 minutes of education. And that is usually reading a book, though I'm also taking a Coursera course, but I've got a lot of, I'm doing a lot of time on education right now because I've got extra bandwidth and when I have extra time. I just do more education. Then depending on the day, I have anywhere from 30 to 60 to sometimes 90 minutes of key work time. And that is spent on projects that are cognitively demanding that are gonna meaningfully move the ball forward. So that's probably something like working on presentations, working in courses, writing blog posts, writing sales copy, working on a project of some kind that's really like tough. I just need my brain to get in it. Then after that, I take about 30 minutes to do a quick inbox here to quickly check on my, my social medias and my email. 
Then by then it's about 10. So I'm going to eat some yogurt and then I'm going to go work out. Then between 11.30 and 1, 1.30 most days, I have another window to make breakfast, do more education, uh, shower, sometimes meditate, sometimes nap. So sometimes I wait till the mid-afternoon. Then I have meetings starting no earlier than 1, but sometimes not till 2, like today. And then going no later than 6, 6.30. And then I make sure I've got some 30-minute blocks in there just to catch up on emails, give my brain a break maybe grab a quick nap, maybe meditate, maybe read for 15 minutes if it's going to let my brain calm down a little bit. Then around 6, 6.30, no later than 7, usually 6.30, I usually will take anywhere from 32 minutes to two hours to finish up my day. Now, tier three time, I ain't got a whole lot left. So I'm going to answer emails. I'm going to do paperwork. I'm going to like write my rent check. I'm going to do, I'm going to intentionally put things there that don't require a lot of brain power because I'm just about gas at that point. And then I usually take a couple hours to sit with my dog. My wife's a Broadway performer, so sadly I don't get to hang out with her at nights usually, but I'll sit with my dog. Uh, I'll watch maybe Netflix or something, eat a salad, walk my dog, and then I'm in bed to read. While my wife gets home, I like to spend like another 30 minutes in bed reading and calming my body down before I go to sleep. And that is painstaking about my day. I, that's so smart to think of it in blocks of time, knowing like at what points in time during your day, you're going to be most productive at certain things. Totally. I think that's a great way to look at it. Yeah. And I, you know, I move it around sometimes, like sometimes I'll, I'll do my workout in the middle of the afternoon. I think I need to experiment that a little bit more because right now it's just not a priority enough probably to be in that time. One trade-off is uh, I'm also considering experiment with more meetings in the morning because I'm fresher in the mornings. But it just depends because the project work, I find I really struggle doing the afternoon and meetings, particularly because of what I do oftentimes, I don't want to say they're reactive, but if I'm dealing with like a, you know, somebody that's, that's called the meeting with me, oftentimes like they have the agenda that I'm just trying to be supportive in whatever way I can. The other thing that I've used that maybe anybody listening might steal is I also track, I think it's 15 core habits that I track on a daily basis. Uh, you can use apps for that. I just keep a Google Sheets open on my computer. And that means every day I'm tracking. And I, of course, I'm such a nerd. They're like conditioned to color code green or red. They're like personal KPIs. Because what I discovered was I don't need like KPIs for the stuff I'm going to do naturally. Audiobooks, I don't track because I just do that naturally. I'm like, think about that. But you know, I track everything from hours of sleep to minutes of lifting, minutes of cardio, ounces of coffee I have a max, drinks per day I have a max, which I go over sometimes. Uh, did I floss? I mean, really simple, silly stuff, but for me, it really helps me keep accountable myself. And here's the important takeaway for anyone listening. What I've done is I've created an external pleasure feedback on activities that are not always intrinsically pleasurable because some of those things I don't like to do, right? But one thing I've realized as I've been doing a lot of digging on this, I know I do pretty unusual as I'm consistent in a way that is like shocking with a lot of these things. And part of that is because I'm goal-directed, I'm driven, but part of it is I create like that's a system where even though I don't get like a dopamine reward off flossing my teeth, I get a dopamine reward when the thing turns green. It makes me happy when I see that. And what I've noticed is if there's something I'm not doing I want to do more of, I just put in that box. I will admit I wasn't good about warming up for a long time. Before Burning Man, I was lifting for so much. I was just trying to get as swole as I could. I wasn't warming up. Sure enough, as soon as I made that a thing I tracked, I've now been warming up like even days I don't work out. I've been taking 10 to 15 minutes to do mobility every day and I feel so much better. Mm. <laughs> and it's also been helpful because on the road, my life is chaos. So I'm very regimented in my life, but I'm on the road more than a third of the year. I spend at least part of the day out of town. And having that has been incredibly helpful because if I'm in the Dublin airport and I'm exhausted and I have like a layover, I'm like, well, I'm not at my steps goal. So I'll just walk around and I'll dig out for my floss bar and I'll find my fish oil. And, you know, I got my greens for me here in my bag. It's going to be annoying to get it, but I want to get that green mark. That's awesome. Such a good way to hold yourself personally accountable. Uh, the only thing I have left for you, we're running a bit low on time, but I have a quick fire round. So I've got a couple of quick questions and I just need quick answers. Great. Sound good? Oh yeah. Oh boy. I'm ready for this. If you could be a fictional character, who would you be? I would be, oh God, this is hard. I don't know why, Scott Summers from the X-Men Cyclops. I've always found him to be uh, my moral center from an early age. Amazing. He suffers a lot too, I don't know why I've drawn him, but there you go. Figure That's it out, great. Freud. <laughs> That's great. Who's the most interesting person you've ever connected with? This is impossible. You know, I'm thinking this is just one, a friend of mine, my friend, Nick Gray, a random shout out. He runs a company here called Museum Hack and he's the most interesting man I've ever met. So he had had another company before that, sold it, um, has other company, Museum Hack. 
And he's just the most interesting, bizarre, in the best way, student of life, where he's always doing these weird like experiments and just reading a lot of things. And he's like super articulate and so humble and thoughtful. Like he throws like birthday parties for his friends, but they're like conferences. He'll, whenever he throws like a, like a cocktail party, he'll ask like for feedback afterwards about how to make it better. Like he's oh just so <laughs> centric uh, in the, just the best way. So I think he's, the, he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Cool. What's your ideal type of vacation? If it's actual vacation, uh, I'd like like an all-inclusive or something where there's no pressure to do anything cultural and I can just like sit and do nothing and just sit in the sun and read and just be calm. Depending on our definition, I define travel differently because I also mm-hmm. love seeing foreign cities is another pastime. I love being in a foreign city and just like walking around, getting espresso, finding the cocktail bars and just experiencing what it's like to be in you know, Chiang Mai or Barcelona or Kyoto or wherever. What's your top book recommendation right off the top of your head? Sapiens. What's your favorite holiday? Uh, I think Christmas. Gotta be. All right. My last question for you. I ask everybody this that comes on the podcast. What makes you excited to get out of bed in the morning? I would say I like to be a student and I like to be a servant. And I I like to be a student because it makes me a more impactful servant. So I think it's like learning and growing and contribution. And I think the one feeds into each other. But I feel very lucky because more days than not, I'm very excited to get up because I can't wait to have my morning cup of coffee and read my books and put my brain on a hard problem and try to figure out this, whatever it is that I'm learning about, and then figure out how do I apply that in Mark Fisher Fitness and Business Unicorns, whatever else comes next, so that I can hopefully be more impactful and, and a better servant to the world and the humans around me. I love yeah. that. If the listeners want to learn more about Mark Fisher Fitness or Business for Unicorns or about you, want yeah. to hear you speak somewhere, how do they find out what's going on? Where should um, they go? They can go for Mark Fisher Fitness. They can go to markfisherfitness.com or find us on Instagram at MFF Clubhouse. For Business for Unicorns, they can go to businessforunicorns.com. Uh, they can also find us on Instagram at Business for Unicorns. They can find me at markfisherhumanbeing.com where they can find very confusing pictures of me as well as my speaking schedule. And then they can find me on Instagram at MF Fitness, at M Fisher Fitness. I don't know. They'll find it. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> don't do a lot of social media, as you can tell. So you'll get occasional pictures of my dog, but it's a great way to, uh, to find me and DM me. And um, I do occasionally like photos from Burning Man. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. This is great. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? Remember, you can catch a new episode coming out every Monday morning. So hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on Stitcher. Or you can visit the podcast website, howdoyoufeelpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening this week, guys. Make sure that you get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.